is where it gets real. You can sort of fake your way through a lot of scripture and you can uh, work your way through a lot of stuff and sound very intelligent theologically and then get to Romans 9 and get absolutely kicked in the face with what Paul is teaching. And in, in one sense, that's a good thing. Uh, it's always good to be kicked in the face by God because it always produces something good in us, right? Uh, but it is, it, it is an important uh, exercise in expositional preaching or, or the, the, the kind of preaching that I do where we take a text and we read through it. We've been going through the whole book of Romans. And as we go through, I'm, I'm trying to lead you verse by verse and passage by passage and paragraph by paragraph. In seminary, we called it pericope by pericope. Look at that. You guys don't even know what I'm talking about now. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's essentially that we, we, we make sure that we get the argument thought by thought all the way through that we find it in the most logical way, the way that it's written, and try to understand the bits and pieces along the way so that we understand the cohesive whole of what Paul is writing to the Roman church. And the same could be said of any other letter or book of the Bible. And so as we get to Romans 9, we've got to realize where we've come, that we are in a letter written by the great apostle Paul, uh, who was Saul, who was a Hebrew of Hebrew and a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and whom Jesus came to on the road after his resurrection and ascension and led him to Christ to be uh, the voice of God, basically, to the Gentiles, to, to be the apostle who would go and bring the gospel to the Gentile world. Now, Paul doesn't only bring it to the Gentiles, he brings it to the Jews also, but we think of him as the apostle to the Gentiles. He's writing this letter to the church in Rome. Uh, for some reason, just because of our, our church background, the way things sometimes happen, we, we get so, uh, if I put this the right way, we get so Christian that we forget to actually think about the things that we're talking about. It's like, you know, who's the, what's the letter of the Romans written to? And we're like, the people in Ephesus? You know, I mean, it's just like we don't, we, we, get, we get a word like Romans and now that becomes the word. And we just, we just got to understand the, the basics of the text. There's a church in Rome. New believers, converts to the faith in Rome, and it's far away from Jerusalem, if you know where Rome is. And so as Paul is making his missionary journeys, he's going around planting churches, but this is not one of the ones he planted. This is one of the ones that started some other way, whether it's some believers who left Jerusalem and went there, whether it's some Roman citizens who came uh, and, and found the faith somewhere else and met up with some apostles somewhere else and then brought it back to their home. Uh, in whatever way the church was started, Paul longs to be with them. He wants to visit them. He wants to bless them. He wants to be a preacher in their city and to, and to help their evangelistic work. And Paul has not been able to do that yet. And so he's writing this letter, this very um, lengthy and uh, rich letter full of theology, but essentially at its core just about the gospel. I, I said to some friends this week, I said every week as I'm preaching in Romans, I'm reminded of how deep the gospel is, how, how rich, how thick, and how dense, it, how, how much there is to it. And at the same time, I'm reminded every single week of how truly simple it is. We can use very few words to describe this gospel, and it can be very clear. Gospel, the, the word gospel means good news. It is the thing that is heralded, the thing that is announced. Think of 
somebody who would come into town, <clears throat> all the, okay, I know you guys can't understand a world like this, but we don't have any electricity. <gasps> Our children are like, how could we survive, right? Um, so imagine the time when there is no electricity, when there are no trains, there's, there's no great uh, postal service going on. Um, the, the, there's the, the communication that happens happens very slowly. So what God does is he calls certain men to go and to proclaim the gospel. They are eyewitnesses to Christ. They have walked with him. They have uh, seen him. They have gotten the teachings directly from him so that as they go and they teach, they are teaching what he has taught them. And as they go, they walk into a city and they go to the public square. And that's the place where everybody would go when there was new news to be found, when something was going on in the world and it was important to find out. You didn't just go, ah, I don't feel like it. Everybody shows up. It's like saying there's a huge, it was, was it this week that there was a, uh, the first national public service announcement breaking on TV? Was it this week or that last week? And it was the first one. And we think of it as, no, it's been doing that for a long time, but it was the first one in which uh, the way they explained it, the president, within a 10-minute time frame, they could have, the, they, they could say, we're going to do this in 10 minutes, and he could immediately have access to everything, all media, at one time, 10 minutes from the moment that it in, is initiated. Imagine that moment where something so important has happened that that comes on your television, and the announcement is made that something is immediate and urgent, and the president is going to address everybody in every form of media, you would go, oh no, what? I mean, another terrorist attack? You know, what's, what's going on? Um, imagine somebody walks into our city. We have no methods of communication other than talking and riding and people walking from one city to another, or riding on a horse, something like that. And imagine somebody comes into town and says, I have some very important news. Everybody comes out because you don't you know, you don't have all the information. You want to know. There's a stranger here, and he's got something to say. And that news is given. It essentially is Paul just fleshing out that very basic announcement in greater detail. That Christ has come. That there is power in this gospel. That if you hear it and believe, this is the great king who sent his son to die for you. If you will repent and believe in Christ, you will have new life. You'll become a part of this kingdom. You have the opportunity to respond. Yes, I want that. I, I, I repent of my sins. I, I, I've rebelled against God. God, forgive me. And then you have the opportunity to then put all of your trust in Christ. It is Christ in whom we stand. It is his righteousness that clothes us so that now it is not our good works that we stand with because they could, we can never stand before God with our good works. We can never do enough. We can never overcome the sins that we have done. But we only hold and cling to Christ and his cross. We only stand because Jesus never sinned. That's Romans in a nutshell. And then Paul fleshes it out and goes deeper and richer. And then he gets to Romans 8. And Romans 8 starts with, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation. There's, there's nothing that can bring you down. There's nothing that can come against you. There's no one who can say you are guilty because God has declared that you are righteous in Christ. 
And then we go to the end of Romans chapter 8. And he says, there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. There is nothing that can separate us. We, we, we have no condemnation, and now there can be no separation. And this is the great result of what Jesus has done, is that we are now accepted in Christ, and we cannot be taken away from Christ. And so Paul does the next logical thing. He, he, he always goes the next step in the argument. And the next step is this. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears, wit bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceas unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so he, he, he begins this passage. We're running all the way through verse 29 today. And that's a lot of territory, especially considering the content. So we need to move quickly. Paul, after saying there's no condemnation, we are accepted in Christ, there can now be no separation of us from Christ, he now starts to talk about a people who are separated from Christ. You've got to get that. You don't just start up something new. Paul is moving and, and making his argument. He's continuing the argument. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why? Because he has a connection in the flesh to a group of people who've had every blessing that God could give in order for them to know him. They've had everything. He, he lists what they have. They're Israelites. To them belongs adoption, glory, covenants, the giving of the law, worship, promises, and the patriarchs, meaning all the, the fathers of the faith, all those we look back to. When we talk about God, we talk about God in, in reference to his son. Because a lot of people in our culture, a lot of people in the cultures around the world will talk about a God or God's and unless you reference God by his son, Jesus Christ, you're going to have the wrong God. Because it's by Jesus, he is most clearly seen and known. So if you have somebody else who calls himself a Christian, but they don't have Jesus as the son of God who came in the flesh, who died in our place, who took our sins upon himself, who was raised from the dead on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God. If we don't have that Jesus, then we don't have the true God. No matter what else we say, even if we try to say his name, if saying his name is not filled up with the content of who he is and what he has done, you don't have him. I can't point to Jeremy and say, there's my wife. Okay? I, I wouldn't. Okay? But you would all go, wait a second. Molly doesn't have dark hair and, you know, she doesn't, she doesn't wear hoodies, you know? She doesn't speak Spanish. She, she doesn't have those characteristics. And she's not a dude, okay? Okay, that's another thing you might want to mention along the way. So immediately, if I were to say that about someone else, you would all go, no, no, that's not true. 
You're talking, you're talking about someone else. And so in, in proclaiming that we know Christ and, and, and explaining through the gospel who he is, we now know the Father. Paul explains that all the blessings that God could give to lead his people, the Israelites, who've had all of these things for a very long time, the law, the word, the promises, right, the covenants, they have the glory, glory speaking of, you know, thinking Old Testament, uh, you're talking about the, the pillar of fire, right, in, in the wilderness, and, and we're talking about the glory that fills the temple, and these visible manifestations of God. They have the adoption that they have been chosen by God as his people, the Israelites, the Jews. And so when we look at all of these wonderful things, they have all these things, but Paul is absolutely distraught. Because my brother from another mother doesn't have my father. Do you understand? He, it's, like, it's like saying our family. I have a brother and I have a sister, right? I have a, a mother and a father. I have aunts and uncles and cousins. One of my cousins just went out this week and picked out a wedding dress. Thank you, Facebook, for this inf- information, right? I wasn't invited to help pick out the wedding dress. I don't get it. All of these things are a part of our family's life, and yet there is no salvation. And now, if they do not have Christ, there is separation. Paul just said, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. And now he's saying that there is separation for those because they don't have Jesus Christ. They have everything else to lead them in that direction. It's like giving somebody uh, the treasure map, right, to, to buried gold. And you show them, this is the map. If you just follow it, at the end, you'll dig in the sand. And here comes this treasure chest full of riches you could never imagine. And they say, that's great. Let's frame it and look at it and love it. I'm going to put it in some historical archive. I'm going to show all my friends, I've got the map. Isn't this amazing? You've got to take the map and you've got to follow. And that's what the law does. The law is the tutor that leads us to Christ. And that's what seeing the glory of God does is you say, this is the splendor, the beauty of the Almighty. And it points us to the one who cares for us, the one who rescued us out of Egypt. This is the same one who's going to rescue us from our sin. And so Paul is distraught. And I just stop here and just say do you look at those without Christ around you and are distraught do you look at other people and say they're this is this is my family these are americans these are my race this is my neighborhood this is my city and you are in anguish because they do not have christ Do you feel that? Does that stir something up in you? Or are you okay with keeping your mouth shut and keeping yourself inside of your home and keeping yourself with your friends and just showing up at the Thompson's house and mooching off some of their food? Is that okay? Is that enough? Because Paul is distraught. Great sorrow, an unceasing, unceasing anguish. 
The minute we have anguish, we go to the doctor and say, Doctor, I have anguish. Do you have something? Take away my anguish. I have anguish. The anguish that we feel and the guilt that we feel, all these things that we feel, it's not that there can't be other things going on and that we, we can't get help from the doctor. I'm not saying that by any means. I'm saying we should be feeling deeply, deeply feeling what God wants us to feel, which means that we have to look at those around us and see them as family members who have rejected to be a part of our family, and we long, we long for them to come to know Christ. That's where Paul is with his people. He's a great example. He's, he's, he wants it so badly, he wishes that he himself could be accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of his brother. Of course, that's not possible. It's not like he's going, well, I'm just going to go, you know, and kill myself because maybe that will be the, the trick that does it. He's just saying, that's how deep my anguish goes. That I would willingly give my life for them. And isn't that what Christianity is about? Isn't that the bottom line of who we're supposed to be? I said this to some of our leaders this week as we were meeting and discussing how we function as a church, what we're trying to do. As I use the words I've heard so many times from others, my life for yours. Take those four words and drill them into your brain. Write them down and remember them. Write them in the front of your Bible. That's what you're going to read that all throughout the Bible. When you find people that are having problems, it's my life for me. And when you find people who found Christ, it is my life for yours. We are expendable as a matter of fact, the more expendable we come, the more, the more we allow ourselves to be put into the place of suffering and, and even possible death, the more we are in the position of being the ones who could help lead others to Christ simply by the fact that we have given ourselves over, that we don't count our lives as worth something of such great value that we're trying to protect it, that we realize we don't live for this life and this kingdom, but that we live for eternal life and for the eternal kingdom. And therefore, in this life, we live as those most to be pitied if there is no resurrection. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We are of all people to be pitied the most because we believe that we live after we die. If that is not true, Christian living is ridiculous. And the problem is this, and this is how you have to think about your own life. If there is no resurrection, if you die and you just go blank, which is what a lot of people believe around us, if you just die and you just stop existing, are you still living a pretty good life? A life that's worth living, that's just a nice, solid, basically just humanly good life? Because at the end of the day, you can say, I'm, I'm living good either way. Then you don't know Christ. You can't understand his gospel and what it has called you to do. To be called by Christ is to put ourselves in the absolute place of unceasing anguish in your heart. Because in Christ, everybody around you immediately becomes, the minute you know Christ, I, I, I just remember, I remember the day that I, be, I became a Christian, or, or about the time, and I just remember that feeling of, I was four hours away from my parents. We're, we're newly married. We had, we'd both become Christians about the same time. And, and we immediately thought, I'm going to call my parents four hours away and ask them to come down and visit us. Because I want them to know Christ. 
the people who I just sort of trusted and, and they loved me and they, they raised me. And I immediately went, oh my goodness, I found something that they don't know. And I had this, this compelling need to go and to speak. Is that what you found? Is that the Jesus you found? Because there's a bunch of false Jesuses out there. There's a bunch of them. America has a really, really compelling Jesus. And he will lead you nowhere because he is not real. The real Christ, the real Christ will lead you to unceasing anguish. All glory to God, right? Doesn't that just make you go, oh, let's rejoice. Here we go. I'm pumped. Unceasing anguish. Embrace it, right? But the minute we trust Christ, we are put in the battle for souls. We can't win them, but God can. Matter of fact, that's exactly where Paul goes. That's exactly where Paul goes. Verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, but my people in the flesh, those who are in the nation of Israel, they are separated. They don't have Christ. They had all of the promises, all the covenants, all this other stuff. They had the word, they had the law, they had the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, who'd spoken with God, seen God in as much as he can be seen. So has the word of God failed? That's the question, which is why Paul says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. It's, it's just a great statement. I just love it. Not all who are of Israel are of Israel. Right? And we tell our kids, you're in our family, you're a pastor's kid, that doesn't mean you know Jesus. I tell this to this church all the time. It doesn't matter if you're baptized, a member of this church, you've got some certificate on the wall that says that you are whatever kind of Christian. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you've memorized. Because not all who are descended, who are part of the fleshly line of Christian or of... Listen, this whole country and the whole Western world where Christianity once reigned, was once powerful, we started having all these offspring, all these kids, and then we immediately start baptizing them as babies. Now you're a Christian. You're a Christian now. They raise them. You tell them that you're a Christian. And then they go and they live like hell and they wonder what's the problem. But well, they're still a Christian. They were baptized. They're still a member of the church. They can't get rid of that. The problem is, is it's, the, it's not the physical that's the big deal. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. You can be born in the family of Abraham and not be in the family of Abraham. And he shows us how that can be true. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Going back to the Old Testament, we realize that there is a promise given through a certain line of descendants. Okay, verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. You can't just be born into a Christian family and be a Christian. You can't just be a part of a Christian church and be a Christian. Okay? It's the same idea. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. 
It is children of the promise. You can be born into a certain family, but not choose, you can choose to live a different way than according to the way the family is supposed to live, to trust in what, something other than what the family trusts in. And so you can be born into that family, but you can do things your own way. It is the children of the promise who are truly the offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Remember that great promise, right? Sarah will have a son to Abraham and Sarah. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. Okay, Abraham... Isaac, Jacob, right? So we, sometimes we'll talk about God that way, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he's, he's going generations here. He goes Abraham, and he goes Isaac, and he's showing the same, the same point through all of them. Verse 10, But when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not done anything, or had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Now, some of you at some point right there just started tuning out going, oh, it's just, it's getting muddied, it's getting confusing. And so let's just briefly try to make some sense out of this. Paul is talking through the patriarchs key because he talked about the people of Israel and has the promise of God failed. He's given all these things. He's given the map. He's given the direction. He's given, this is how you become a part of this family. And you don't become a part of it by just being born into it. You become a part of it by being born into the promise. Not just the people, but the promise. You must trust that what God promised will come true, will happen. And that's exactly what we do when we have faith in Christ. Faith, another word for faith is trust. We put our trust in that what Jesus did is for us and takes care of all the business of getting rid of our sin, making us righteous in Christ, clothing us with the righteousness of Christ so that we are his and that we can never be separated from him. Do we do any of that? It is God who does that. It is God who keeps us. It is God who no longer condemns us and tells us that nobody else can either. So, and this is made most clear in the last example as we talk about Isaac and Rebekah. And it talks about there were these children. There were these children who had done nothing, either good or bad. And yet God chose one. The older will serve the younger from Genesis 25. She was told the older will serve the younger. And then we find out in Malachi, it says, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, God looked into the future and realized that Esau was going to be a real big dirtbag and that Jacob was going to be awesome. And so that's why he said that, right? I mean, it's because God saw it ahead of time. And is that what it says? It says, they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. And then it says, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, even though God can look into the future and see things that are done, 
even though God does know all of that, because he doesn't live, exist in time, time is his creation, so he exists out of time, God, without taking any of their works into consideration, chose one and not the other. That's election. He chose one and not the other. Now, in the, in the big picture, 9 through 11 of Romans is about Israel. In the big picture, he's going to the people of Israel, speaking about Israel. And what a lot of people will do here is try to find a way, because these terms start to become scary to us. And they try to say, well, this is about Israel, so he's just kind of explaining stuff that happened in the past, and it's all about selecting a people. And there's truth to that. It's not that it's not talking about that, but it's also talking about individual election in that he actually gives an individual example. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. He's not just talking about his people, but he is. He's also talking about individuals. And so we immediately read this and we go, okay, wait a second. God chooses, without seeing anything that is done by any of us, he doesn't look forward to see what we'll do. He does without seeing anything that we've done. He chooses because he chooses. And then we go, okay, wait a second. Something seems wrong here. Something seems a little out of whack. And, of course, Paul knows that you're going to think that and that I'm going to think that. So he goes to verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Isn't that what we wonder? How can this be a just God? How can this be a just God? He just chooses which ones that he is going to love and which ones he's going to hate apart from anything they do. He just chooses. Is God unjust? Isn't he unjust for doing that? That seems unfair. Who, who here, and let's be honest, because I'll raise my hand, who here thinks that sounds unjust? That God would choose that way? It sounds unjust. It absolutely does. Which is why Paul says, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And then he explains why it is actually very just of God to do exactly what this says. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I believe that's Exodus 33. I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. If you were to say that, I'd smack you on the mouth. <laughs> right? Really. You just choose. If I looked at my four kids and I say, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. What they hear is, wait, what? Like, you're just going to treat one of them better? Why, you know, why does my tan kid always get all the best toys? I don't understand. It's just... <clears throat> but that's what God said to Moses, and then Paul says, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion. It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It depends not on what you do on what you say, on what you think, on what you feel, on what you want, on what you don't want. It doesn't matter. It depends on God who has mercy. Paul goes, okay, I get it. I get that you're not just going to go, okay, move along, Paul. I, I, I'm fine with that. So he keeps explaining. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, Pharaoh 
is no believer in God, okay? So he's not like giving Pharaoh as the example of great faithfulness, but he gives the example of Pharaoh. For scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, this is Exodus 9, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That sounds like Pharaoh's going to be a great preacher, doesn't it? I raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Is he saying Pharaoh's going to be, you know, early days Billy Graham or something? I mean, what's Pharaoh doing here? Pharaoh is the one whom God hardens. We're going to look at that in a second. Verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Pharaoh is the obvious example. Anybody reading this would know when he's talking about Pharaoh, talking about the Exodus, he's saying that Pharaoh did not do what God wanted him to do. He, he continued to rebel against God. So the bottom line of the argument, and now he, he's going to explain it further, but the bottom line of the argument is God has mercy on whomever he wills. And he hardens whomever he wills. Verse 19. I'm not just skimping on you here and just bypassing and going, oh, we won't deal with that because it sounds too confusing. We're going to let the scriptures speak for themselves. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Okay, so if God, if God chooses some and doesn't choose others, if he loves some and hates others, if he just does this based upon nothing that I do, if God... If God has mercy on the ones he wants to have mercy on, but he hardens the one he wants to harden, why does he still find fault? Am I not just a puppet in his play? Am I not just a pawn in his game? Am I not just the one who kind of has to go whichever direction God says I have to go? Paul says, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Can the creature resist the will of the creator? Can the infinite almighty God have a will and we go, I'll just will something else and I'll beat God. I'll do my own thing. Is that possible? It's the understood answer. Who can resist his will? No one. We should all agree. Even if all of this is confusing to this point, even if as a Christian you're doctrinally feeling like this is not quite what I believe, you're trying to figure out what this is really saying, you would still agree we can't resist his will. He is the Almighty. And then he says in verse 20, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Ouch. Right? If you are the one going, that's not the God that I know, my response to you, as Paul's response to you is, is who are you to answer back to God? Who are you to say what God can and cannot do, should or should not do? How he should choose, how he should decide things. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Will the one, will the one who is molded, will, will the clay pot look to the potter who's crafted this pot? Will the clay pot look back up and go, Why did you do this to me? <laughs> you know? Why did you make me like this? No, it's, it's a clay pot. The potter makes it for a purpose, and it just has that purpose. And it's the same with us. 
Will what is molded say to its molder, what have you made, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Remember creation. Remember creation, right? God takes the clay, makes man. When we die and our bodies go into the ground, if we're just thrown into the soil, what happens? Give it, give it a while. The worms get fat, and you get skinny <laughs> because the worms get fat. You just, you become the soil, dude. I mean, that's just, that's how it is. Do you ever go out and, like, like, feel the dirt and go, oh, look at this. You till up the ground, and it's got this rich black dirt, and you feel it, and go, oh, I just, it's dirt. You know what dirt is? <laughs> you know what dirt is, right? You're probably holding in there somewhere some human DNA, <laughs> right? Animal stuff. You know, I'm not just saying animal stuff. I'm saying animals themselves and, and, and insects and grass and leaves and all of that is just all disintegrated and become this rich soil that's good for making, you know, planting things and having them grow. You one day will make a lovely gardenia. Just lovely. <clears throat> because we're made out of clay, okay? So here we go. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump Separate one piece out to make a vessel for honorable use and another piece out and for dishonorable use. I am no expert on pottery or, or most things. Um, but the, the example that came into my mind, which I'm sure is, is not a perfect example, but it's, it's the idea, is you take this lump of clay or some type of you know, basic material and you separate some and you make this shiny, white toilet. Right? You've, you've watched how it's made, right? They're firing all these, to these toilets in this big kiln, and then they come out. And you know what I'm talking about. You guys know what toilets are? Okay, good. Here, everybody's paying attention. Um, <clears throat> if you were to just take a picture of an angle of a toilet, you might go, ooh, that could be something very beautiful. That could be a great, that could be a piece of china, right? So you take this one piece, this one lump, and you, you make a toilet, and then you tell people what to do with it, okay? Here's a toilet. And then you take this other piece, and then you create this beautiful flatware that's, that's perfectly designed, and, 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 and it's, it's got this gold something put onto it and it's just great and you go and you sign up for it when you're going to get married so that somebody will buy you some flatware and some some plate you know some china and all of that out of the some lump, same lump god makes the toilet and the beautiful family heirloom china that's how god works that's what god can do because he's god and is no right of the thing that is made to say, why have you made me this way? What if God, this is verse 22, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, get, get this now. Now, now he's, he's pulling back and he's getting into the mind of God. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, okay, first of all, to a lot of us, that's like, okay, wait, wait, what? God desires to show his wrath? He desires it. Okay? This is Paul's example here. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, 
has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy. Oh, this is, this is hard, guys. This is hard. In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So, God makes a hundred things. And a part of his desire is to show his full character, to, 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 to be put on display in his glory because he is perfect and good and righteous and glorious. And he wants to reveal to vessels of mercy his great beauty. And a part of that is that God will have wrath against vessels for destruction. And in doing so, he shows his amazing and infinite justice in that what he has defined by being God as right and wrong is truly right and wrong. And all of those vessels of mercy, look at what God is doing. By giving wrath to those who deserve it. And hear what I say there, I'm coming back to that. He shows his power and his glory and his beauty to the vessels he created for mercy. He wants those whom he has chosen, the vessels created for mercy, to see him in his greatness, in the fullness of his being, in the depth of his riches. God wants his vessels of mercy, those whom he has chosen and set his love, his covenantal love upon, like Jacob and not Esau, when he says, I choose to love this one and hate this one. When God does that, he also, at the same time, is going to eventually show to the one who he has not chosen his wrath, his justice, and it is truly just. And then Jacob looks at what happens to Esau and goes, how great is my God. It is not to take delight in the suffering of another. It is not to have the desire for others to just get their due, although there is a certain kind of place for that. Just read the Psalms and you'll find it. But God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his powers, endured with patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand. Prepared beforehand. Remember chapter 8. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. The golden chain of salvation. When we look at that, we see God has been doing this, building this, creating this. It's all a part of that work. He's been doing it beforehand. And so he has prepared beforehand us, vessels of mercy, the ones who are truly Christians, truly believers, even us whom he has called not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. And this comes from Hosea um, chapter 2 and chapter 1 both. Those who are not my people I will call my people, and her 
who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said of, to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. It is not that God just takes Israel and says, oh, I'll have to refigure this thing or whatever. It's that he goes now to those who are not his people and he calls out some who will be his people. When we re read uh, several places in Scripture, but specifically when we think about Revelation, we think of God calling some from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people and every nation, right? This is how God chooses. He, he likes colors, diversity. He likes it. He loves it. He, he wants it. He wants people from every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. Not because everyone has their own value or something like that. The world's diversity and God's diversity can be very different things. But it's because in choosing some from all, he shows no partiality. Right? He shows himself most glorious by choosing some from all. Because in every people on earth, there is prejudice. There is, right? I mean, we can see it just everywhere we go, everything we do. We can see it inside of races, not just between races. We see it inside of men, you know? Oh, it could be all men in one group, and they're all together, but there's still differentiations among that, and there's still prejudices that are happening. Because somebody doesn't like a goatee, and the other person doesn't like the beard, and the other person doesn't like the clean-shaven dude. Just trust me. You know, I mean, you, you've, you've lived this, right? You've seen it. And so God chooses some from all. He chooses those who are not his people to be his people, to, to become beloved, to cho chooses to love his people. That's how God works. That's what God is doing. Verse 27, and Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 1, if the Lord of hosts has, had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah, meaning no more. That God chooses to fulfill his promise, not just the nation of Israel that he has fulfilled in Christ and that some have trusted in Christ, but to the whole world that he is choosing some from all in order to show himself so glorious, in order that there will be even vessels of wrath that will be destroyed and show his glory. And now we have to kind of filter this through, not because God's word needs to be filtered, but our brains need to understand things that are very difficult for us to understand. And the first thing I want to say is, is that we need to let God be God. And when we get to a part of scripture that is hard to understand, that we want to ask lots of questions and say, but it just doesn't seem right. I have heard some of the best speakers in the world uh, who are Christian leaders who 
who are uh, debating people who will read this scripture and say, it's, it, it means what it says, and I have seen people, rather than trying to explain this scripture means something different, I will see people who will say, but if God is love, he can't be like this. He can't be like we think this reads. Because if God is love, it's got to be different than this. Therefore, if God is love, I must just say this is confusing and I don't understand it. So wherever God is clear about something, but we don't like it, we just say, we'll take the parts that we like and we'll hold on to that. And what you get is God made in your image and not the God that he describes himself as being. Now, you, this is what you have to understand. This is what people will do. And if you are here, especially for the first time today, this is what can be confusing for you. And it's going to be very hard in the last minute that I have to try to explain this fully. Romans chapter 9 comes after eight chapters of Romans. And if you have been here for the entire series and you take into consideration all the things that God tells us, all the theology, all of the gospel, all of the truth, if you do that all the way through Romans and get to this point and realize the freedom we have in Christ and the fact that we don't deserve what we get, and we go back to Romans chapter 8 and read, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot Please, God. And we go back to Romans chapter 3, where it's quoting the Psalms that says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. When we realize all those things are true, when we realize all of this, and it says at the very beginning that, that I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, what we realize is this. No one will desire to believe in Christ and not be saved. You have to understand that. Because what people will do is say, but what about, what about people who God hasn't chosen? What if they want to be Christians? It doesn't happen. It doesn't exist. It is an impossibility for that to occur. And so when, when God chooses some, it is not that he chooses some even though more wish they could get in. It's not like we're outside an exclusive club. And we're all waiting in line, and we want to get in because this is where all the famous people go, and, and you know, where they have extra olives in your martinis, or whatever it is you're looking for. And so you're in line, and you've got the bouncer who's picking out the hot chicks to come in, right? And he looks at you, Jeremy, in your hoodie. Here we go. We had to get back to the hoodie, okay? And, and, he, and, he, and he looks at me, and he goes... You just don't fit. You're not going to. And so there's all these outside. It's not like we're trying to get into this exclusive club and we're all wanting it. And the bouncer only chooses some. That's not God. The reality is this. This is, this is really the bottom line of all things. If we read all of Romans to this point, what we get is this. We all deserve hell. A just God could have sent us all to eternal torment. Because we have all rebelled against him, that's what we deserve. That's complete fairness. That is complete justice. But God, while we were dead in our sins, sent his son. Because he chose, before time began, knowing that we would rebel against him, he chose some. And as the message goes out, only some will believe. 
it is absolutely impossible that all will believe. Not just because we look historically and see that that's the case, but because it is an impossibility. There are some who will never believe. They're not just because they're not chosen by God, but because they get exactly what they want. They want to continue to rebel. All sinners, number one, deserve what they get because they sin. They choose to sin. They want to sin. And all sinners will remain in their sin unless God breaks through and shakes them so so disturbingly, so that they take this, <clears throat> I've been watching, um, what's the, the, the Alaska Gold Rush show? What's it called? Is it Gold, is it gold Rush? Okay, Gold, gold Rush. And, uh, and they're trying to find gold, and they're trying to find these little tiny bits of gold, and there's these huge boulders in the way. And they have to take this massive machinery to try to get all of this stuff and move it out of the way and filter it all through with all this huge, you know, thousands of dollars of money goes into these systems that filters everything out. So at the very end, they can pan through it and find these tiny little bits of gold. Because it's so valuable at the end, they're going to be able to compile it all and they're going to be able to hopefully get rich because, because of that. There's a boulder in your life, in all of our lives. It is our, as the Bible calls it, our hearts of stone, where we want sin, love sin, rebel against God, run from God, hate God, are hostile to God, don't seek after God, don't understand God, won't listen to God. We are doing exactly what we want. And yet God chooses some because of his love. Because of his love. Because he is the great God, he chooses some. And even in the middle of choosing some, there are some that are still destined for wrath and they're going to receive it and God's glory is going to be fully seen because he is going to show a part of his character that would not be found apart from that. But God chooses some. And so our job is not to walk around and go, they're one of God's chosen. They're not one of God's chosen. They are one of God's. We can't do that. We don't know that. God knows that. What we do is we go and we proclaim to all. We proclaim to everyone the free gift of salvation in Christ for all who repent and believe. We proclaim it to everyone, knowing that some will believe knowing that some are out there that have been chosen by God since before time began, and they are waiting, not knowing, they are waiting to hear. For those of you who are Christians, there was a time in your life when the gospel came to you, and you went, whoa, and it just washed over you like a washing thing over something. You know what I mean? It, it, it just absolutely blew your world out of the water and everything began to get rearranged. Now, part of the problem with some Christians is that we stop allowing God or stop wanting God to rearrange our stuff. We start trying to read, and a part of making sure we're his people, to make our calling and election sure, is to, to watch our life, to watch our doctrine, to watch the way we walk, to, to be together with God's people so that we can help correct each other and lead each other down the path of righteousness. But knowing in it all, we are accepted because of Christ. And in it all, we have to let God be God. And remember that Romans 9 is not about God's harsh will against those who don't believe. 
Romans 9 is about the God who has mercy. You stand with me for closing prayer.